Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. Today we have Dr. Emily Wyckoff, a health psychology fellow at Harford Healthcare's Institute of Living. And Dr. Wyckoff is going to talk to us about a very fascinating topic, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, specifically related to the GI tract and GI diseases. Emily, thank you so much for doing this. Um, this is something that I feel like I started talking about in my visits uh, in the past maybe two, three years, especially with irritable bowel syndrome, bacterial overgrowth, gut dysbiosis. But honestly, I think I know only maybe 2% about what it really entails. And I'm excited to learn more today. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to telling you about it. So Emily, before we get started into specific applications of cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, for GI diseases or gastrointestinal diseases, can you explain to our listeners, medical, non-medical listeners, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? So cognitive behavioral therapy is a structured, goal-oriented form of psychotherapy. It focuses on developing coping skills and changing unhelpful behaviors and thinking patterns. So CBT is based on the idea that our beliefs and thoughts influence our emotions and our behaviors, as well as our physical symptoms. So if we change how we think, it will influence how we feel and what we do. And there's, you know, over half a century of research at this point supporting the efficacy of CBT, uh, originally for things like depression and anxiety, and increasingly research on chronic pain, GI diseases, that kind of thing. All right. And for our listeners, we're saying CBT as in Tom and not CBD, which also exactly. may alleviate anxiety, chronic pain, and GI disease. But today's topic, CBT. So great. Um, again, Half a century of research, like you mentioned, um, it it makes sense. You know, if you change the way we think about things, our 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 emotions, and we will feel differently. But obviously, it requires a specialist like you to help us feel that way. So, for what GI diseases do you consider cognitive behavioral therapy? So CBT for GI diseases is focused on improving coping and quality of life in addition to impacting the physical GI symptoms. So it can be helpful across GI diseases with a clear organic etiology and disorders of gut-brain interaction or GGIs. So there's been extensive research on the efficacy of CBT for irritable bowel syndrome with over 30 randomized clinical trials at this point. And GI-focused CBT not only improves quality of life and symptom management, but there's also been research that has shown that it normalizes brain re regions implicated in gut-brain dysregulation. So we're really kind of seeing increasingly that kind of biological evidence. And while the research base for CBT for GI disorders other than IBS is a bit less robust, there is, you know, evidence that's accumulating for non-cardiac chest pain, inflammatory bowel disease, and functional dyspepsia. So let's talk specifically about um, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, or I use the term sometimes, sometimes gut dysbiosis. 
Can you describe how the initial CBT session would look like? So in a first session, I tend to gather information so that I can start to form a working biopsychosocial model of what's perpetuating a patient's disease experience. And then I like to use that gathered information and examples from the patient to help explain the cognitive behavioral model and the different components of CBT, which include relaxation training, changing unhelpful thoughts, and breaking unhelpful patterns in their disease management. Provide a lot of education on the gut-brain connection and transition to relaxation training. I describe an exercise like diaphragmatic breathing and how that can induce the relaxation response, which counters that overactivation of the nervous system or the stress response that we know is so um, impactful on the gut. And typically like to, you know, give people something to do in between sessions. So we'll practice diaphragmatic breathing in session, and then that'll be their homework for the week. So I, I'm very fascinated uh, with diaphragmatic breathing. I, I think even my my kids, they come on sometimes and one of the homework lessons was belly breathing and, you know, taking deep breaths. And I just think that has very powerful effects. So would it be possible for you to kind of talk us through or teach me diaphragmatic breathing uh, right now through like an audio only podcast? Definitely. So I'll have you put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly. And just to start off with, just take a couple of deep breaths. And what do you notice about the movement in your chest versus your belly? So it seems like the chest is going in, the belly's coming out. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you already kind of have our, our natural diaphragmatic breather. Oh, um, practice with children. Yeah. So so when we take, you know, big, deep breaths, often kind of a natural tendency is to go into the chest. And this is also when we tend where we tend to breathe into when we're anxious. So for diaphragmatic breathing, we really do want to focus on those big, deep belly breaths. So breathing in your lungs, expanding and pushing down the diaphragm and letting the muscles in your belly relax and expand. Um, and if you think about people, you know, with GI pain, often they're, they're additionally holding tension in their belly. So it's helpful in multiple ways. Great. Um, so for, for that, I'll have you, um, you know, take a big breath into your belly for a slow count of five and then exhale for a count of six. So we can maybe do two big deep breaths together now. And I'll count. So inhale, two, three, four, five. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Inhale, two, three, four, five. Exhale, two. two. Three, four, five, six. How did that feel? I'm ready. I'm on vacation. I'm ready. I'm relaxed. Exactly. Yeah. It, feel, it feels good. Yeah. It's relaxing for sure. Yeah. And I think it's a really great, um, simple way for people to be like, oh, wait, yes, I do have control. I can get myself to calm down in a really, you know, doing a really quick, simple exercise. Oh, that's, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, 
simple thing people can use when they need to obviously GI related, non-GI related. Um, going back to our, uh, our IBS patient, how many sessions does your typical patient need? So for a patient who's really ready to get to work, ready to incorporate skills into their everyday lives, we can see big improvements in as little as four sessions. It does really vary patient to patient. Research points to four sessions being as effective as a more traditional treatment length, which would be about 10 sessions typically. And, you know, like any therapy, are there are there patients who would not be candidates for cognitive behavioral therapy? You know, are there contraindications? I guess another way of putting it. Yeah, that's a great question. So most people are going to be good candidates for CBT. It does require a higher level of motivation and ability than some other types of psychotherapy. Um, so there certainly are some folks that won't be as good a fit. If someone's really malnourished to the point where it's impacting their cognitive functioning, likely not going to be able to fully engage in CBT. Similarly, someone with serious mental illness is going to have a hard time fully engaging with CBT for that's GI focused and probably needs a non-GI focused kind of psychiatric intervention at that point. Um, we also see that some patients are just skeptical of the gut-brain connection and resistant to the idea that they have really any ability to impact their symptoms or improve their quality of life. So if someone doesn't want to make changes in their lives or really insists that they can't change, then, you know, I can try to convince them for a little bit, but they probably aren't a good candidate for CBT at that specific time. And this is where, you know, providers really using some brief motivational interviewing, which I know is increasingly being taught in medical training, um, and kind of repeatedly assessing openness to a treatment like CBT and send them, sending them over when they're ready. You know, I think that's a really important point. I think, you know, you have skeptical patients. There's also skeptical providers. Um, and I've noticed definitely a shift, uh, a very positive shift where with providers specifically where we are more and more accepting of, you know, the, the brain gut action or gut brain interaction or, you know, I always I always talk to my patients about the the brain gut access and how it can be on hyperdrive in patients with dysbiosis or irritable bowel or certain GI diseases. And I think you're right; it's important for us providers, the the non mental health, non behavioral health providers, to say, "Hey, this is part of the pathway. This is part of the pathophysiology. It may may not be the whole pathway, the whole pathophysiology, but it's part of it." And I think if we lay that foundation a little bit. Um, it makes it more accessible for the patients to open up to you. And obviously, based on what you do, patients can really benefit from that. So, you know, I'm also hoping this kind of episode and, you know, sharing this will be another one of those gateways to really make everybody uh, aware of the the true benefits here. Um, last question, you know, and then um, I, I, will, I will let you go, Emily. Any adverse effects? You mentioned contraindications, but what about adverse effects? So the great thing about an intervention like CBT compared to like a medication intervention is that it, it is very low risk. Um, I think if someone has a bad therapy experience, whether CBT or non-CBT, it can lead to the belief that therapy doesn't work and they have you know no agency in their disease management. And that can certainly be 
an adverse effect. Uh, luckily, GI psychology is pretty specialized, so it's more often that I see people have kind of a different therapy experience uh, that uh, diminishes their belief in therapy um, more so than the GI psychologist. Emily, that's fantastic. I mean, overall, this I I know will be tremendously helpful to both providers, patients, uh, average listeners who just want to learn more about CBT. Um, thank you so much. Again, um, this is Dr. Emily Wyckoff. She's a health psychology fellow uh, with Harvard Healthcare's Institute of Living. She's currently seeing patients at the Digest of Health Center uh, out of Bloomfield, Connecticut. Emily, thank you so much. I may have you on again to do different therapy because uh, that was fantastic. Thanks for having me.